Welcome to episode number 56 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And our guest today is Damiano Gerli, a man of Italian descent who started his career as a video game journalist and now considers himself a video game historian. Sounds a little familiar. Um, (laughs) Damiano is here today to tell us about an often neglected part of video game history, uh, specifically how Nintendo marketed itself in Italy in its earliest days there. Uh, His article, which has the absolutely perfect headline of Selling Mario to Italians, the untold story of Nintendo in Italy. Great headline, Damiano. Is available now on GenesisTemple.com. Damiano, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. Um, You know, typically when we're talking about, especially the NES uh, outside of the US and Japan, I tend to think of it almost as a footnote in that country. Like, yeah, the NES was distributed throughout Europe, but it, but it doesn't really seem like it caught on in a meaningful way. Am I wrong uh, when it comes to Italy? Well, uh, you're not wrong, actually, because um, this is what I actually think is interesting when researching the, the history of uh, Nintendo in Europe, in that it was very different from what was going on in the US and of course the the rest of the world but it's also hard to really talk about it because each country really has kind of its own history with Nintendo and of course with Sega too but yeah we stick to Nintendo for now and so I mean what happened for example in the United Kingdom might be kind of similar but not really the same things that happened in Italy or Spain, or Germany, you know, each country has its own history. But really, yeah, I think it would be correct, generally, to say that NES, you know, wasn't really a footnote, but it had really much less success than, you know, what happened in the US in the same period, in the 80s, basically, and early 90s. Yeah, so set us up in just kind of Europe in general at first. I mean, what does the video game landscape look like in the 1980s there? Because it's not really a, a console kind of uh, portion of the world, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say it, it isn't. Um, generally, I would say that um, home computers were really the big thing in Europe in the 80s. I mean, uh, speaking about Italy, for example, uh, basically uh, the Commodore 64 was among the best-selling computers ever, I think. I think it sold even more than the Amiga, which, you know, the Amiga was even, I think it was almost as big, but I think the Commodore 64 sold even more than that. So I think, uh, I mean, even going outside outside Italy, I think generally it is correct to say that home computers were really the the hot selling items in the the 80s. Uh, Consoles had more of a hard time. For example, uh, in Italy, uh, the Atari 2600, the Intellivision, had some kind of market segment, but it was really kind of a small market segment. It was mostly destined to young kids. Uh, there were commercials, but they were really aimed at, yeah, very young kids. It was really a small portion of the market. And I think that's basically what was going on in the rest of Europe as well. I mean, you had, of course, people that owned and remember the Intellivision and the Atari and yeah, other consoles as well. But yeah, pretty much uh, small 
portion of the market, I think. So, yeah, and and as the the story goes, um, in in terms of Nintendo, you know, we're coming in, uh, v- the very very first presence of the NES, specifically, I should say, in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, is coming. Um, late 1986, which actually, like, I hadn't really even realized <laughs> it was that early. Um, because you know that that is the year that the system uh, launches nationally in the U.S. and and at least in some parts of Italy, I'm sorry, in some parts of Europe, um, you 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 actually see the PAL version of the system, and and that includes Italy, it seems, right, in 1986. Yes, um, I recently found uh, a leaflet that Mattel wa- actually sent to various shops all over Italy in 1985. So I think we can presume, which is, this is the problem with <laughs> the kind of sources I have to work with. You have to presume a lot of things. <laughs> but still, uh, we can presume that by the following year, so 1986, they had actually begin distributing the, the NES but they actually did distribute the NES in Italy via another company, which was kind of a subsidiary of uh, Mattel at the time, which was Wonderland, mm-hmm. which is something that most people don't actually remember because it was a really, really short experience. But you can still find some kind of ads in the magazine with uh, the NES having the Wonderland brand. So it was a short experience. But still, uh, I mean... You, we, we can talk about it as a kind of a different experience from you know the Mattel years that would follow, but it was basically still the same company in the end. I mean, Wonderland would be then absorbed by Mattel in 1987. So then, of course, Mattel picked up the, the NES and they distributed it all over Italy. Uh, but I think the problem back then was that uh, it seems that Mattel, even though they had already marketed in television, did not seem to have a clear idea on how to market it. I mean, uh, the marketing was really different from what was going on in the U.S. At the, back then in 87, 88, more or less. Uh, you can already see that from the terminology, the kind of words that they use in the marketing, it was really, really similar to what they were already using back in 1984 for the television. So there was no real kind of progress in the, way, in the way that they would market the NES. So it wasn't kind of, you know, the big revolution in video games. They didn't see it like that, or, or at least that's what it seems to me, of course. Uh, so they were still using those kind of weird terms like, you know, the zapper was called the video pistol, you know, in Italian, video pistola, but yeah, the video pistol, which really are an 80s term. You, you hear it and say, what? what? What's a video pistol? And also the, the NES that are kind of, yeah, Control unit, it was called basically, which is also a, a term that really, you know, stinks of eighties, <laughs> the eighties. <laughs> so yeah, I think they were kind of lagging behind in terms of marketing, and that that probably contributed. I mean, it's not the only factor, but that probably contributed to Nintendo having kind of a false start in Italy and, of course, all over Europe as well. Well, and I want to back up a little bit too, because I mean, you mentioned that they had sort of a false start in in Italy, but. Uh, you know, Europe didn't have a game crash like we had in the United States. So there wasn't, rather than Nintendo kind of being this like rescuer of the console market, um, you know, like like they're sort of painted to be in the United States and rather than them having to kind of uh, Trojan horse this in as a toy and, and try to sell it that way. I mean, they're almost trying to invent the console market a second time because it doesn't take off the first time in the 80, in the early 80s. 
Um, and they're coming in now in the mid to late 80s and just kind of trying the same thing that already didn't take off the first time. I mean, is that, is that an accurate read? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think moral, I, I think it is accurate in that uh, going back to the, the big crash of the, of the video games market, of course, uh, it didn't really happen in Europe. I mean, the effects weren't that huge in that you can talk about like a, you know, a pre-crash or an after-crash. Uh, and this is also because, of course, the, the console market was pretty small as well. I mean, of course, the, it was dominated by, you know, the Commodore and Sinclair and all of that, those um, home computers. So, of course, uh, there was no big saturation of the market in terms of uh, gaming consoles. So naturally, uh, I think that mostly what happened is that uh, Mattel and also Bandai also distributed the, the NES at first in some parts of Europe, uh, basically continued doing what they were doing before, you know, just just sticking to what they knew, <laughs> what they were familiar with in hopes that, yeah, it would work, I guess. I mean, I guess they were not really expecting the, the NES to be that big of a success at this point, I think, because they really didn't make any change that I can really uh, see from the marketing as opposed to what was going on even two or three years before. But so I think that what they were really waiting for was either for, you know, uh, Nintendo to wake up and get angry and say, what are you doing in Europe? Why aren't those consoles selling? Uh, or, or of course, also to Sega to come and pick up that market and actually create that market uh, in place of uh, Nintendo. <laughs> so either of those two things happened and then they decided maybe we should change our way of marketing. <laughs> and Sega does pretty well uh, mm -hmm. in Europe, right? I mean, especially in Italy. It's the master system sells much better than the NES does, right? Uh, yes and no. In that, <laughs> in basically, what happened with uh, with Sega was that uh, the first Sega product that arrived in Italy was the on computer, the SC three thousand. That had a really unlucky history in that uh, the company that was supposed to distribute it had um, an incident in their warehouses that one warehouse caught fire. So they lost a lot of money. So the first uh, thing to go was the marketing budget for Sega. So naturally, I think they sold like maybe 50 units, <laughs> something like maybe really small. I mean, they made no marketing at all, really a small marketing budget in the end. So of course, Sega said, no, we're not going to continue with, with, those, with, with this company. Uh, in the end, what happened with the Master System, and that was the, the first company that brought it to Italy, was called NBC. No relation to NBC, you know, the, on the TV, of course. It was <laughs> a, a very small company in the north of Italy, and they clearly had no idea what they were doing. I mean, they thought that they could market a, a gaming console without doing any kind of significant marketing. They did very, very little marketing and they just thought, oh, yes, we're just going to, you know, to write to people that buy uh, some magazines for home computers. We're going to write to them and say, oh, you know what? The master system is coming out. You should buy it. And that, that was it. That's all the marketing they did. And of course, the master system sold very poorly in 86. So that also kind of kind of had a rough start as well. Uh, but then, of course, Sega also woke up and said, no, we're gonna, not going to use NBC anymore. That was 
really, I think it lasted a year or something like that. So then they went to a serious distributor that was a big toy company in Italy that was called Giochi Preziosi. And then Giochi Preziosi really turned things around for the master system. And they put a lot of money into the marketing budget. And they really, and that master system started selling like hot cakes, of course, after that. But we're talking already up like 88, 89, around that kind of period. And, and that's, I think, when Mattel also woke up and said, maybe we should change something. So what else is going on, uh, you know, video game-wise in 88? I mean, you know, it, are we still in a, in, a, in a weird place where these are just toys or are we starting to see things specifically targeted to video game players like magazines and things like that? Or is it too early for that? Um, I, I think when talking about the video game market in Italy, there's kind of a, a elephant in the room that can be ignored, which is uh, software piracy, which is mm-hmm. video game piracy. And I'll try to keep things sh- short because it's not the main topic of our talk, so I'll try to keep it short. But basically what happened is that um, until 1993, Italy did not have a law on on the copyright of software so basically everyone could pirate i mean pirate is not the right word because there was no law so it wasn't illegal but yeah you know you know what i mean could copy any games that they like with no consequence no consequences at all so what happened was that uh, several compass companies in italy actually started selling copied games on a kind of a industrial scale so really you could go out and buy next to, you know, your magazine. You could buy a compilation of pirated Commodore 64 games. And yeah, it was easy as that. They were really cheap. And that also, of course, also contributed to on computers continuing to sell very well. I mean, the, the Commodore 64 scene, I think, in Italy lasted until 94, which is incredible to think about because by then the, the Commodore 64 was 11 years old or something. And the Amiga, even beyond that, the Amiga scenes lasted until 97, which is, you know, incredible. By then there was Nintendo 64 was out and people were still buying the Amiga. Crazy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, piracy contributed a lot, of course, to home computers selling like hotcakes and consoles, of course, not selling because uh, consoles were much more expensive. And yeah, there was piracy on consoles, but it was kind of a small thing, of course. I mean... Yeah, it was more expensive anyway, even to buy things to copy games or cartridges and stuff. So, and going back to the magazines, what actually happened in that is that around '86, '87, some of the legitimate video game publishers, yeah, strangely enough, there were still legitimate <laughs> video game publishers, um, realized that they really had no way to market video games to their public. So they thought maybe we should create a magazine in order to use it as a kind of a marketing tool. And what happened is that uh, there was actually um, a lawsuit between one of the legitimate computer publisher and one of the illegitimate <laughs> computer publishers. And they can uh, reach an agreement where the publisher of this kind of magazines with pirated compilation would actually start publishing uh, a real magazine, which was, of course, Zap. They, they got the license from the UK and thus basically Zap, the Italian Zap was created and then it happened with the games machine and all of that. So basically, uh, you could say that gaming magazines in Italy actually 
uh, were created because of piracy, which is a strange mm. actual thing to talk to think about. It's a strange thing, but yes, <laughs> that's what actually happened. And then, of course, uh, Zap, uh, I think at the beginning also uh, published news uh, about the Nintendo as well, about Sega and Nintendo as well. But it wasn't really their field of expertise. So uh, pretty soon another magazine was created. But yeah, we're talking almost the, the 90s uh, at, the, at this point, which was, was Console Mania, which was uh, basically by the same publisher as uh, The Games Machine and Zap basically was the one single publisher that did all this kind of magazine. So uh, so basically the answer to what was going on at the time in Italy, you, you think piracy and also piracy is kind of a big factor when you have to think about why the NES and the Master System were struggling to, to find the public. That's also because, you know, people were really accustomed to buying games very cheap, to play mm -hmm. games very cheap. And I think if you really think about it, that also contributed to a kind of culture that in Italy, it's still kind of present, I would say, of, you know, thinking about games as being not really worth that much money, you know, kind of, you know, being a small thing, a small pastime that you would, you know, spend 30 minutes on because you have a compilation of like 100 games that you bought for like five euros. So who cares? So on to the next one, who cares? So I think it contributed a bit to this mentality of, you know, fast food gaming, you could say a bit. So what what is the you know even theoretical you know uh, appeal of a console then at this point I mean is <laughs> is it you know what I mean like it, it's like like how do you even theoretically sell these to Italians in in 1988 is it I mean here's my guess is that it's it's a it it's a lot easier to just plug plug in and play these games for small children like that's the only thing I can think of <laughs> Well they're expensive too Right, I mean, they're very expensive. I, <laughs> you you said that the deluxe edition of the NES, which by the way, I don't even know why they brought Rob to other countries. It make no doesn't idea. make a lot of sense to me. But yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, five hundred and ninety lira, which you said is somewhere around you know five hundred fifty five hundred ninety euros now. I mean that is so much money. But yeah, I mean the the standard edition of the NES wasn't that expensive, but. Uh, I think the main problem wasn't really the price of the console, was the price of the single games. Because as Frank said, um, it's kind of hard to market your games as, you know, it, even if a single game costed like, you know, 30 euros in today's money, that was still kind of a hard sell considering that on the Commodore 64 or the Amiga even, you could buy, you know, or trade floppies with your friends or, you know, buy tapes for li very little money and get tens of games for very small money. Uh, so I think that at that point, the marketing really needed to, to show people that console gaming was something different from, from home computers. So of course it was more attractive, more ready to play. It didn't need any kind of loading or, you know, uh, even of course, part of the games many times had problems in loading because the pirates had to actually uh, modify the game to avoid all brands because there was no law, but you still get could get in trouble if you used uh, a brand, for example, Pac-Man or yeah, Super Mario. Even of course, you could still get in trouble for that, even though there was no law about the software copyright. Uh, so the games sometimes came with new bugs. The pirates actually added bugs, and sometimes they were not finishable because they were just broken. So, of course, gaming on console was easier. 
was, you know, you were guaranteed that you could finish the game, that you got a, some kind of quality experience. Uh, so I, I think they tried to market it as being superior to their home computer counterparts. Uh, but still, I think, yeah, probably like, as, as Frank said, that it was really marketed towards the, uh, a younger audience than home computers because, because home computers were really considered to be kind of a young adult, adult kind of thing, you know, around even teenagers maybe, or even beyond that. So of course, console gaming had to go to, to another segment, which was of course, you know, around 10, 12 years old, but this of course brought other kinds of problems later. <laughs> we will get to that. But of course, this decision of trying to appeal to that market, which was, of course, the same market as toys, yeah, created another kind of problem later. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, you mentioned Mattel is the one who's distributing the NES at first here. And you went as far as to say they they distributed games that did not appeal to the tastes of Italian kids. Um, I just want to talk about those games for a second and um, why you, I mean, I'm looking at just this flyer you have in here or, or this ad and it's, um, it is a very random assortment of game. It's like solstice <laughs> and kickle cubicle and, uh, total recall and, uh, Solomon's key. I mean, it is world cup makes sense to me, but the, <laughs> the rest of them, I'm like, are these, what, what are they thinking here? What, um, why, <laughs> what games would have been a, a good fit and why were these ones not a good fit? Uh, well, what, what games would have been a good fit? Of course, I think that, um, uh, I think Italy at the time, the, did, I mean, home computers did not really have a kind of a casual gaming audience. Uh, home computers had a kind of a really, spe- you know, specific audience that was, that was interested in some kind of, you know, adventure games, uh, games with narratives. So of course on consoles, you did not really have that. So of course you have to kind of create your own audience in a way also. So you have, you have to understand what kids' tastes were, but in a way, I don't think they really had any kind of idea because of course, as you, as you said, there were kind of a random assortment of games. And many times I, I remember that also reading that many people were complaining back then because they could not find that the, the games that they wanted because Mattel would just choose not to import certain games uh, and yeah, the reasons I can only speculate at this point because I don't really have any kind of precise, precise answer. But uh, on one hand, I guess they were trying to make Nintendo happy because, of course, Nintendo was really interested in pushing the first party titles. Uh, on the other hand, I think they were kind of relying on their experience as toys distribution, toys important distribution. So was kind of a weird mix of things that led to both parties being basically unhappy, both the audience and Mattel and, of course, Nintendo as well. Um, so, for example, what I do, what I was told actually recently, this is a really new thing that I still haven't put in the article. Uh, what happened at one point was that there were some software houses that wanted to actually distribute NES games in Italy but found themselves unable to do so because Mattel would not actually publish them. They were kind of doing some really um, kind of blackmailing them from the market, basically, blacklisting them, sorry. Uh, Basically going around to the shops and saying, don't buy the games from this software house, which was Mindscape, actually. Don't buy the games from Mindscape because they suck, they're terrible, so don't buy them at all. So this 
kind of give you the idea of that Mattel was trying to make Nintendo happy in some kind of weird way. And what happened was then Mindscape actually went to uh, another publisher in Italy, which back then was the biggest uh, publisher of video games, which was Leader. And Leader actually distributed this kind of third-party titles by Mindscape on the NES market, which is very weird to think about that a third-party publisher, of course, would actually go into the market and try to sell these games. But uh, as the president of Leader told me a few days ago, that was the only way that Mindscape found to actually get to the Italian market because there was no way otherwise. So if you take that experience and that experience and think about it for any other kind of software houses or studios that were trying to get into the Italian market of the NES, yeah, you get the idea that was a really difficult market to understand that, that I think they had very little idea what they were doing. But luckily, things would improve later, kind of. <laughs> well, let, let's get right into, I think, the fun stuff here, right? Let, let, let's get to 1990. Um, uh-huh. And uh, both Sega and Nintendo are, are, are kind of competing uh, in the same way, right? Yep. Which is celebrity endorsements. Uh, was this was this common in Italy? Uh, for for toys, not at all. Actually, I mean, because toys were considered to be, of course, a product for children. I mean, of course, but that wasn't really the problem. For I think people working in the ad industry and marketing, I think the problem was with commercials destined for uh, kids was that. Of course, they were destined just to a very specific slot in the afternoon so that, of course, kids that were doing their homework could watch TV and cartoons. I mean, we didn't really have the Saturday morning cartoons back then because uh, most kids <laughs> back in the 80s actually went to school on Saturday morning. <laughs> so we oh, really interesting. Had, yes. <laughs> so we had uh, the afternoon cartoons, which was almost uh, basically every day. And that's where you would see the Nintendo commercials and the Sega commercials and yeah. Uh, So basically people working in marketing were not interested because if those commercials weren't going to end up on prime time, so on television where a lot of audience was present, they said, no, sorry, that's that we're not interested. So of course that uh, actually ended with uh, um, commercial for toys being considered really the last thing in, in marketing. So it is surprising to see actually celebrities endorsing video games because it makes you uh, a bit makes you realize that by then finally someone realized that there was a big potential in the market for consoles. So maybe it was time to actually invest a little more money, so actually increase that marketing budget and do something else. Uh, now I'm not sure if I were considered that's something else to be that effective <laughs> this particular something else yes. yeah <laughs> yeah because you know looking back it's yeah kind of embarrassing and yeah you know, as you know the kids would say cringy and stuff uh but yeah i mean Wait, as least... the kids would say what what was that cringy cringy, oh, cringy. got it okay got yeah. it <laughs> I thought I thought you said some cool Italian word i wasn't familiar oh, with it's like oh <laughs> oh do you have an italian word for cringe uh, or do you just use cringe? I think we just use cringe, yes. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean in, in my local dialect, you will say terribile, as you know, really terrible. But yeah, I mean, that, that's just a very local dialect. Uh, so, uh, so, so who's what, our cringe here? Who, who are we talking about? 
Uh, yeah, of course, what I refer to as the Italian vanilla ice in the article, <laughs> which I mean, you it, also you also call him spaghetti ice, which spaghetti I'm... ice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean it, it is kind of unfair for uh, the the poor Giovanotti because I mean he got better. I mean, uh, okay. I'm sure, so, uh, as opposed to vanilla ice, I mean, at least he got better. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, back then. Um, Giovanotti was basically trying to imitate the rappers from New York uh, very poorly. It was like a really commercial version of the Beastie Boys, if you can actually believe that. Uh, I can't, but yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, looking back now, it was kind of a weird choice because on one hand, you Mattel was trying to appeal to very young kids and Giovanotti was really more of a teenager's kind of thing, even 20-something, 18-year-olds. So you you could say, oh, maybe they were trying to appeal to teenagers. But I, I probably would say no, because, uh, I mean, the way that they shot these commercials, I mean, the, the <laughs> really clearly destined for that kind of young adult uh, market segment. <laughs> young kids, sorry, market segment. Uh, well, so wait, so teenagers didn't... Uh, live alone in apartments and and try to seduce women who came over with yeah, video games? Weirdly enough, no. <laughs> and they did no mansplaining of any kind. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get girls to play Super Mario Brothers. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, the idea was that, as I, as I told in the article, that uh, Giovanotti represented uh, what was appealing to to the market about the United States, so kind you know the cool United States, the cool kids with his hat backwards, all that kind of stuff, kind of a children of the United States thing, uh, children of America, as we would say here, figlio uh, d'America actually. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it is kind of weird actually to think about Nintendo being marketed as a kind of very American thing, like you know, like an hamburger or something like that. Uh, because I mean, it, it is really the most Japanese company that, <laughs> that you can think of in terms of uh, yeah. principles and you know market decisions and all of that. Uh, I think that in that way, the marketing people clearly were showing their age in that kind of decision. Because uh, back then, Japan actually in, in Italy, I kind of uh, uh, I think uh, many kids were fascinated by Japan uh, back then because. Uh, basically, we had anime going uh, on the on the afternoon time slots for for kids, which is another very weird thing to think about because anime, you know, it's not really for kids. <laughs> so you would have you know very violent cartoons like Fist of the North Star or mm-hmm. Kenshiro, as it's, as it's called, which is a very violent anime, and it was destined for kids, which is very weird to think about. But yeah, so uh, they went, of course, with the safest choice. I mean, appealing to to Japan would uh, probably require a different kind of celebrity, and I have no idea who, who would have would have been chosen to represent Japan in Italy. I'm scared actually to think about it. So, <laughs> there uh, wasn't an Italian guy trying to act like a Japanese guy that you could have used. <laughs> probably there was, but I don't want to know who that was. So. <laughs> it's safest to. I think the safe choice was. In that way, uh, Giovanotti as the, the kind of American guy. Uh, but that, of course, was a very short experience. Uh, it only lasted, I think, for one year. And again, 
I don't have any kind of Mattel representative telling me what happened, but I think it wasn't a really successful marketing campaign. But at least it's not remembered as something that is successful, even by kids back then who, were, who still felt it that's kind of embarrassing even back then. And so, of course, it's only become worse in, in years. And I think Sega had the advantage in that Jockey Preciosi was going for the football players, which was a really smart choice in that we're marketing football games with football players. So it was, you know, a match, a football match made in heaven. Uh, so... Uh, I think they really clearly had the advantage there. And uh, also, also, I think the reason why Sega continued in Italy with the celebrities, at, at least until 92, almost, uh, while Nintendo was really just the one guy, one rapper guy that uh, tried and failed to make any, the NES cool. But yeah, it failed. And something that's also interesting, that then I'll just stop my ranting, um, is that... Um, there was really no um, no real connection. I mean, Mattel wasn't interested for to find like a connection with other kind of marketing. As I mentioned in the article, for example, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game basically came out at the same time as the movie in uh, in Italy, but there was really no reference to the movie, either in the commercials or in the ads on the magazines. There was really no connection at all between the two things. And even going back to Fist of the North Star, for example, there was, of course, a game. I mean, there were several games in Japan about Fist of the North Star, but there was one game in particular on the Mega Drive that would come out later. And it wasn't even marketed as being a game about Fist of the North Star, which would have sold right. like hotcakes in Italy. I mean, if you just understood and made the reference in the marketing, I said, oh, this is a game about Kenshiro. All the kids would have bought it. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I would have bought it too. But what we got was a weird translated title that made no clear reference. All the references to the Kenshiro anime were taken away. So, so that I mean, yeah, just for context, that that is something that you know initially happened here, right? It was uh, oh, what do you remember? I don't remember the title. Last the battle. Game. Last battle. Oh, that's right. What yeah. was it called? Last battle. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and and so it was. Uh, I think I think Taxan here. Uh, distributed it in the U.S., so it's like mm-hmm. you, 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 you got sort of the 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 crumbs from the U.S. without like kind of translating it <laughs> I, back. Yeah, um, I thought we got was, no, we got we got it as Fist of the North Star. It was here. called Fist really? of the North Star. Yeah, okay. we did. Um, I don't know that anyone cared. Um, <laughs> yeah, because that didn't. You know, we had like Dragon Ball was big here. I don't know that Fist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't born in the '80s, so maybe I'm a little off base here, but. Um, I don't know that Fist of the North Star was ever like that enormous of an anime here. Uh, I don't think well, so. I mean, there was nothing enormous until the nineties, but, um, right. but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, you know, that's one that I guess we, we took the name, but, um, you know, yeah, to, to your point, we had, we had Dragon Ball here as Dragon Power and they took his tail off and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> but, but, that but, um, but, but in their, to their credit, mm-hmm. when Bandai brought that game to France, they, they reverted it back to Dragon Ball because yep. in France they knew what Dragon exactly. Ball was. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it just it's it's kind of interesting that they took it away from. I just want to sorry. I just want to mention real quick the yeah. Fist of the North Star one I'm talking about is the NES one, and you're right. Yeah. Last Battle is the okay. Genesis slash Mega oh, gotcha, Drive gotcha, one. Yeah. So sorry that was me getting confused there. But yeah, yeah. we <laughs> we had a Fist of the North Star, but all the way back on the NES. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, we. Uh, I don't think we ever got the first of the North Star NES game in any form, at least not that I know in Italy. Uh, so yeah, it, all those kind of weird, uh, you won't even call it decisions. I mean, it was just lost <laughs> chances to actually sell more games. You know, like, you know, no, I don't, I mean, I mean, I'm pretty sure that they had really no idea about their audience, that their audience was actually watching the animes every day. They actually cared about them. And I think that also continued uh, with later with uh, with Jig uh, in that, for example, Sailor Moon was pretty big in Italy in around the mid-90s, uh, even a bit before that. was yeah, I remember all the kids uh, in my uh, classroom watched it, even though someone wouldn't really uh, tell you, of course, that they did. <laughs> Men don't yeah. watch Sailor Moon. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. We only watch uh, men killing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Explosive <laughs> North Star. We, we need. We need. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hard <laughs> punching. Um, but yeah, even that, I, I don't think it was even imported. I mean, I don't remember any kind of advertising about the was the uh, Super Nintendo Sailor Moon uh, fighting game. I don't think. I don't remember anything about it. I mean, maybe it was imported, but it was never marketed, you know, as being, oh, the game from the anime. You watch the cartoon, now play the game. You know, the really basic kind of marketing thing. Yeah, they wouldn't, weren't really doing that. I think they were just interested in selling toys. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's the, really the bottom line here, I think. So um, in 1991, Mattel and Nintendo part ways, right? Um, mm -hmm. What happens next? Um, so, um, of course, uh, I'm not, again, entirely sure what happened between Nintendo and Mattel, but I think we can at least conclude that that agreement wasn't making uh, both parties very happy because, I mean, <laughs> clearly uh, uh, Mattel wasn't doing a very good job with the NES. I mean, they tried, of course, with the spaghetti vanilla thing, sort of. Sort. <laughs> uh, but with the Game Boy, I, I think they really uh, missed a very, mm. really a good chance there. Because, of course, there was no big alternative to the Game Boy back then. I mean, except for the, the, the Tigers, the damn Tigers <laughs> electronic thing, the <laughs> handhelds. And uh, yes. Um, but yeah, uh, Mattel did really little marketing for the Game Boy. I, I I don't know why on that. I really have no idea why. They were interested or they didn't know how to market it. I don't know. But yeah, what happened was that it was very poorly marketed and it sold very little. So uh, Nintendo, I think, made the you know the only decision that they could make in that they couldn't go with Giochi Preziosi because Giochi Preziosi was selling Sega. So of course, no way that Nintendo would associate themselves with uh, a company that was selling the, the Master System and the Mega Drive too. Uh, so, of course, they went with the other player in the toys department, in the toys uh, distributing uh, business, which was uh, Jig, which was a company from Florence. And they were all basically, I mean, they distributed all over Italy, but yeah, you know, the big uh, main headquarters was uh, near Florence. And um, from what I mean, the, I I've been lucky to actually find someone that that jig that worked at jig that wanted to talk to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, what I found out is that basically they were left with a lot of unsold NES cartridges. They they, they said that they had a really big stock left. So clearly there was some problems in the way that Mattel <laughs> choose choose their titles. And on the other hand, of course, they had to find a new way to market the Game Boy because 
it was basically yeah i mean the public knew the game boy but by then the game gear was the number one uh, handheld console in italy so the game boy of course needed to to be brought back to the to the market and being you know a bit reinvented for the market and then of course uh, pretty soon uh, the super nintendo goes from which would also mean that jig had to really step up their game and actually start to think about how to not repeat the same mistakes that brought Mattel to uh, close the, the agreement with, with Nintendo. Uh, I mean, from what I've seen, at least they took it seriously in that they understood that they had to change the way that change the way that they would bring the products to market. They also started advertising a lot on television while Mattel was advertising still a lot on magazines why jig went you know almost all the way into television and they brought an important marketing agency with them so i mean at least on paper <laughs> they were being very serious about nintendo so um well they also of- hired a, a, a fairly famous director for a commercial yes and that was the commercial for the game boy yeah. So the, they decided that, you know, to bring back the Game Boy in the ring, let's say that they needed some kind of strong statement. So they said, you know, let's pull all the stops. Let's uh, pay this. Uh, yeah, back then, uh, Maurizio Nichetti was yeah pretty famous director. He had done some interesting experiment. He had done a, kind of a Roger Rabbit-like kind of movie back then. So he was also popular with kids. So it was a sensible choice in a way. But yeah, in the end, I don't know, of course, exactly. I don't know the details of what happened. But yeah, basically everyone was unhappy about the Game Boy commercial directed by Nikketi. Nikketi himself included. <laughs> basically, no one in the end had faith in the project. I mean, it, it was just left as it was. You know, saying, you know, we can do anything else. Ship it. Just ship it as it is. Who cares? And I mean... It was kind of a big budget production, but yeah, you see it and there's even no dialogue. So yeah, luckily I don't, didn't have to create the subtitles for that. Uh, but yeah, you see it that you don't really see the big production values. You don't see anything out of the ordinary. I mean, it's fine. You got the big Super Mario animated kind of stuff going on, but yeah, you don't really see that big of a difference. But what Jig actually did right was they cut... The, the Game Boy price to a very minimum. It was very, very cheap. So at that point, you really had no excuse to buy Game Gear at that point because Game Gear was more expensive. And also, weirdly enough, uh, the Game Gear in Italy was marketed a lot with the accessory, the TV tuner kind of thing. I remember being uh, very aggressive marketing. I mean, I remember wanting one like crazy. I mean, I, I, re- I remember dreaming about... Uh, lying in bed and watching TV on the Game Gear, which had a terrible resolution, and I think it would have been a nightmare, not really a dream, but yeah. Yeah, that's the power of marketing on young kids' minds. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, Game Boy, of course, had kind of a different way of catching your attention, and I think that worked in the end, being you know kind of sold as a cheaper alternative. So... I think in the end, Game Boy really found its market and later would actually become, of course, very uh, pretty popular console, a portable console in Italy, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, so of course, we're coming to the Super Nintendo as well, which was released uh, in Italy in 93. 
And uh, that also, uh, of course, came with its own share of problems, <laughs> because as it happened, um, the marketing agency uh, wanted some kind of very important commercial for Super Nintendo. And I think they were going to go in a different direction from what was going on uh, previously, even with even what Jig was doing with the Game Boy and what Mattel did earlier. They wanted some kind of more mature kind of commercial. So, you know, targeting teenagers and yeah, young adults. But apparently Jig wasn't really convinced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they basically weren't ready to uh, do that kind of jump to another kind of audience, apparently. And, and that's, I think, ties in with what I was saying, that they were really interested in just selling toys. I mean, it, it was like Jig wasn't really ready to consider the Super Nintendo as something else than a toy still, even though it was, you know, it was time already, it was 93, so yeah. Yeah, it seems uh, like a lot of... I mean, th this whole story, I feel like there's a theme of just like not wanting to let video games grow up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, I, th I think that that's what it is. Um, and also, I spoke with some people that worked in uh, video game magazines back then, because yeah, I was a bit too young to work in video game magazines back then. Uh, <laughs> uh, what they told me was that uh, that actually what was going on in that they... They were, you know, young adults working in the gaming industry. I mean, writing about video games. And they were considered to be very weird by everyone else. You know, they were considered like the losers of the bunch. And they also blame actually Jig and Joggy Preciosi for this. Because, of course, uh, with the whole idea of marketing um, consoles to a very young audience still in 93, 94, and 95, uh, this meant that no real serious young adult would be would like to be seen buying a Nintendo console in a shop. It, it was still considered pretty weird. I think it went away, you know, later in years after you know the mid '90s when Sony happened and changed everything in the marketing business of video games. But yeah, before Sony, yeah, what you said, Kelsey, in that yeah, video games weren't allowed to grow up. They were still considered as something for kids. So of course, uh, imagine writing a review as a you know twenty-five year old for a game for kids. You are considered you know to be <laughs> to, you had to find another job when you grow up. Basically, it was just your part-time job. So. <laughs> but yeah. So uh, tell us about Sony entering the picture because um, this is really you know mid '90s is really where that starts to change, right? Yes. And uh, I mean, from what um, I remember, from what I've researched, I mean, basically Sony with PlayStation in Italy had kind of an instant success. I mean, by in the course of a year, I think from 95 to 96, and the PlayStation debuted in Italy in 95. By 96, already Sony was kind of dominating the market. But then again, I mean, back then, Sega was basically on its way out because it didn't really have a big presence by then. And Jogi Preziosi kind of gave up on the whole marketing business by, I think by 94, they had given up already. But by 96, they didn't really care anymore. So yeah, the, the Saturn really died a, a sad death and the Dreamcast actually did even worse. But yeah. Um, so basically, the only competitor for Sega was Nintendo in Italy, and 
yeah, Nintendo had really a different market segment by then at this point because Sega, you know, just entered the market, took the market by storm and said, you know, video games are mature now, deal with it. And so they, they, they went, you know, with a very aggressive marketing and commercials that you didn't even need to adapt because they were the same basically all over Europe. Mm-hmm. It was the same commercial that you saw in the United Kingdom and I think in other countries as well. So basically, they just dubbed them over and they were ready. So it was really simple way of marketing, very quick way of marketing. And also Sega, of course, worked directly with the various shops around Italy. So this meant that they had no problems with uh, giving a certain number of products. Each shop could say, uh, I need 20 copies of Tomb Raider or whatever. And they, Sega would say, yes, I'll take it into you. While Nintendo was always, you know, being Nintendo, basically, so being problematic and saying, no, I'm out of stock right now. Let's talk about it in six months and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Sega, uh, yes, Sony, sorry, really worked uh, very well in that and basically took the market by storm. And also, I think, was also helped by um, 97. Also, um, an important thing happened that it is kind of surprising to say that too. <laughs> an American audience in that MTV arrived in Italy in 97. I mean, to be clear, we already had kind of a version of MTV, but it wasn't really an official thing. It was kind of some product programs were translated, some music videos, but yeah, it wasn't really an official thing. By 97, finally was kind of official thing. And pretty soon it would have its own channel. Uh, yeah, basically MTV Italy was, of course, targeted only for teenagers, young adults. That was just, you know, was very different from the, the afternoon time slots that we talked about it earlier. And basically this meant, of course, that Sega, uh, Sony again, Sega, Sony had really kind of a dedicated uh, audience that they could market products to. And while Nintendo also tried to get on the action, they were really late to the party. I mean, by 97, they were really struggling to change their way of marketing. Uh, what the, the the marketing director from Jig told me is that they really tried to make Nintendo change their ways, change their mind, change the way of marketing, but Nintendo wasn't really convinced that that would be the right way to go. And he remembers that uh, the Nintendo 64 in Italy had a really disastrous launch. It sold very poorly in this first few months. It was launched in March of 97, so really late to the party. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so basically, I mean, they tried to market it, you know, to make it cool. They did a 3D rendering in a commercial, kind of make it look expensive and try to cater to their strengths in that, you know, Jig was a player, you know, you bought products from jig for years so you can trust us so they try kind of to play to their old strengths but of course you know kids love market stability yeah sure. <laughs> I mean, you say to a kid kid do you want two years of warranty or do you want tomb raider or resident evil <laughs> and it was, it, they will surely say yes two years of warranty please <laughs> so i mean it was a lost cause by then it was basically over for um for jig and nintendo because there was really no way that they could could catch up to this new way of doing marketing. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe it would take them years to actually pick up and change their ways. But yeah, in the end, of course, they they never did because they, they ran out of time pretty soon after that with uh, Nintendo and Jig, their agreement. So yeah, that was the end of it. I like, you had a, a, a note in here about how um, 
in Italy, they they purchased a football team, a um, soccer team for us Americans here. And something, you know, just as a way of um, another form of marketing. Mm-hmm. But I thought you had a, a note in here that uh, Minoru Arakawa, who is the president of Nintendo of America at the time, was upset about this purchase and says that's not the way Nintendo does things. Nintendo literally purchased the Seattle Mariners in 1992. <laughs> that is quite literally the Nintendo way. That is, <laughs> they've done it before. So I don't, I don't understand that one. <laughs> I, I think there's, I think there's an interesting detail to add to this story that I didn't actually put in the English version, but not, now you understand why. Uh, so what happened w- was that the day of the presentation of the team with the new, you know, kind of shirts with Jig Nintendo was written on the shirts of Fiorentina, which was the home team of Florence. Uh, basically, they took um, a really famous actress and, you know, she wasn't really famous for her acting chops. Let's put it this way. So she was chosen <laughs> because she was, you know, attractive and, you know, the young audience really liked uh, her forms, let's say. Uh, yeah, so basically they, you know, put, they made, made her wear the, the shirt and they paraded her around, of course, the football stadium, where, of course, was, you know, kind of a big mess. And I think that's probably what the president of Nintendo in America was referring to, okay. the whole, you know, <laughs> kind of thing with w- women and, you know, being used to kind of sponsor Nintendo that that probably would have been not really liked by <laughs> Nintendo of America. Yeah, but that yeah. makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And uh, a couple of more interesting details that I didn't put in the article about the sponsorship of uh, Fiorent- the Fiorentina team. Um is that at one point they actually added some kind of animation on the on the on the display in the stadium that when Fiorentina scored a goal, you would have Super Mario and going woohoo, and then when the the opposing team scored, there would be Wario going Wah-ha! or yeah something like that, <laughs> and basically that lasted. I think he told me it lasted like two months because. People started aiding Wario, and of course that you know wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't really fly with Nintendo. So of course they had to remove Wario and only leave Super Mario going woohoo. And yeah, <laughs> and another interesting fact is that uh, one day the Pope was supposed to make a visit to Florence and also visit the the stadium kind of before the match, and they actually had this really huge banner in the stadium with Super Mario and Jig Nintendo. And actually, the, the mayor of Florence, I think back then, tried to make them remove the banner because they think it wasn't appropriate for the Pope to see Super Mario in the stadium. Now, I don't know why. We can speculate, you know, but maybe going back to the whole video game for kids thing. I don't know. Well, he, still, he saw he saw that commercial is what it yeah. was. And he thinks yeah. of Mario as, <laughs> as like a pickup artist technique. A pickup yeah. artist, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so what happened that they, they fought about it a bit, but yeah, in the end, they left the banner with Super Mario while the Pope was there visiting. So they called it like, you know, the, the benediction of Nintendo by the church. So that, what he referred to it as that. So that's kind of an interesting trivia bit. But do we know what the Pope thought of Mario? Ah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Probably we, know. we didn't get his opinion, but yeah, yeah. Probably think the but did he like the Wario sound? Yeah. Or the pickup lines, probably. <laughs> so there's there's a lot more detail on, on, on the sort of, I don't know, uh, postscript part of this history uh, within Damiano's article, which we will... Uh, have right in the show notes. Please go check it out. But um, I wanted to 
ask, you know, instead of sort of details about this history, I want to ask you, Damiano, why did you create this article? <laughs> um, you know, it's actually uh, an interesting question in that I basically asked myself the same thing while I was working on it. I mean, why am I doing this? I mean, um, at one point I thought I was just basically repeating what someone else had already published. I mean, I was pretty sure that I was, you know, talking to this guy that used to be the marketing director of Nintendo in Italy. And I was pretty sure he was just, you know, telling me stuff that I could easily find online in Italian, of course. Uh, but in the end, when I kind of started doing some more in-depth research, I found basically nothing about Nintendo in Italy. And that really surprised me in that, of course, I mean, it wasn't, you know, that huge as it was in the US, but, you know, it was a pretty big thing, of course. There's still plenty of Nintendo fans in Italy. So I, you know, kept asking myself, why did nobody bother to do a, a bit of research? I mean, if I managed to do a little bit of research on my own, I mean, <laughs> I don't consider myself to be a great uh, researcher or something. Uh, why is that somebody in the business did it before me? Um yeah, I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, at least an answer that I would be comfortable in, you know, sharing with the, <laughs> the public. Uh, but yeah, what I think is that if you look at the articles on Nintendo in Italy, they all refer to the same kind of narrative that uh, we were referring to at the start of the episode. You know, the kind of tired narrative about the big crash of video games and Nintendo versus Sega, Sega does what Nintendo don't, all this stuff that, didn't really happen. I mean, in Europe, but in Italy, of course, it never happened because that kind of marketing was actually uh, outlawed, was banned. So we couldn't really have the Sega does when Nintendo kind of marketing, this kind of really uh, versus kind of marketing. Uh, so in the end, of course, I, I realized that if I didn't go on and publish that kind of small research that I did about Nintendo, that there was nothing else online that one could refer to to find, you know, a little bit of history about what actually was going on at the time. And that also, I think, gives you a little bit of perspective about uh, what, how is the console gaming market today in Italy, and of course, what happened uh, from nineteen from the nineteen eighties until now. And that's basically what happened with the with the article on Sega in Italy. That's basically the same idea. Uh, as well i mean that's what that was one topic that i was sure that someone had already had already done research or written about it but yeah i didn't couldn't find anything else so you know when i published it in english people kept asking me but are you going to do an italian version as well and i said mm. okay i guess i'll have to <laughs> because there's nothing else about it and i have you know more details that i would like to add that I didn't put an international version, you know, to keep it a little bit shorter. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I was forced to do that because there's little bit of research on the, what was going on in, uh, in Italy or in Europe, even at the time in the 80s and 90s in the console market and uh, et cetera. So, yeah, the, the, that's my reason. I had to. I was forced to. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, even in Ita like the Italian sources you were finding, they had sort of co-opted the narrative of the US market? Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think that's also what happened when the high score, the documentary from Netflix uh, came out. That was, of course, I mean, it 
came from the US, so it made sense that he would talk about the market in the US. But what happened was that I kept uh, seeing people posting about it in uh, referring to Italy and trying to make, you know, the comparisons about what was going on in Italy and what they were talking about in the documentary. Uh, you know, kind of a reverse Mandela effect, you know, kind of people deleting their own memories and replacing mm. them with <laughs> what people were talking about in the high score documentary. And that was kind of scary at one wow. point because you were, you know, I mean, we're really talking about kind of old history. I mean, in the 80s, that was 40 years ago. So this is already kind of old history at this point. So I, I, at one point I realized if I don't do this now, even by five years from now, it's going to be too late. Uh, people are probably going to forget about it. Maybe I wouldn't say, you know, die, but <laughs> yeah, you know, people get old and forget things. So, um, I mean, at one point it was really a mandatory research because, uh, you know, I, I felt I owed it to, <laughs> to, to, to myself and what I also played as a kid to kind of put down what was actually going on in Italy, at, at least as far as, you know, the little sources I could find could actually tell me. But yeah, I mean, it was really a scary time when uh, High Score was released. <laughs> I got, you know, wow. Well, I have a whole new appreciation for this because, I mean, I was already excited that someone was just simply telling English speakers what was happening in another part of the world. But the fact that you need to reteach your own country what happened there is, uh, <laughs> that's very yeah. important. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for doing that. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> well, uh, Damiano, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining thank us you. this week on the Video Game History Hour. Um, we'll have links to Genesis Temple uh, in the show notes, as well as this article. Uh and uh, a few other links for you. But um, for those listening, uh, where can people find you on the internet? So I think the, the easier way to find me, the easiest way to find me would be on Twitter, where you can find me pretty easily if you look me up. And, uh, you know, I post uh, a lot of random stuff, but I also post about gaming history, I promise, every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, yeah, the blog that you mentioned, Frank, and... Uh, you can also find me on Facebook if you're still using that old kind of piece of very bad social media network. Uh, but yeah, I use that as well. And yeah, you can also, yeah, yeah, if you want to support me on Patreon, maybe, you know, support <laughs> some kind of good gaming history as much as I, you know, can actually do it all by myself. Uh, yeah, I also do the Genesis Temple podcast where I try to interview developers and gaming history journalists every once in a while to try to get this kind of a new point of view on things and also trying to get another podcast going because yeah i don't have enough uh, <laughs> free time to myself so yeah i need to keep busy as much as possible <laughs> which is uh it's called in the in the deep end but yeah i mean you'll probably find links on that when it happens it's still not online but when it happens you'll find it on twitter for sure uh, and just uh, for reference, the the website uh, that all of this is on is just genesistemple.com. And I believe yes. uh, you've linked out to all that stuff from there as well. Um, but uh, Damiano, thank you again. This was awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. 
Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. 